You are now listening to the Film Monsters Podcast with me and Ray. <laughs> Well, hello everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Film Monsters Podcast. I'm Nate. And I am Ray. And yes, now we are called the Film Monsters Podcast. Uh, Ray made a post about it on Instagram. We're not going to go too heavy into detail with it, but from now on, we'll be called the Film Monsters Podcast. And so if you go back and listen to any of our old episodes, we're not re-recording that for you. Uh, just deal with it. Yeah, I don't I don't know what to tell you other than we're the Film Monsters. I will, however, keep claiming that our logo remains the real monster. So the real monster is our mascot. But we are the film monsters. So, Ray, I want to quickly transition before we get into our super fun topic that we're going to be talking about today to talk about someone that we both love quite a bit. And I'm sure most of our listeners who are film lovers love him quite a bit. And that is Mr. John Williams. And I saw an article this morning, and I'm sure, Ray, this hits you just as much as it does me. But John is saying that after his work on Indiana Jones 5, that he will no longer be making film scores. He will continue to work on music but that he will not be doing film scores anymore and i feel like that's kind of an end of an era yeah i john williams has been near and dear to our hearts despite me calling him jim one time i'm sorry i apologize for that john williams has done so much i feel like he's been the soundtrack to our youth to our upbringing i mean i know Neither of us were born around some of the classics like Jaws or the original trilogy for Star Wars, but I feel like John Williams has been there since the beginning. Like, before I discovered some of my favorite bands like Thrice, I was listening to John Williams score, you know, the Jurassic Parks, the Star Wars, the Jaws, the Indiana Jones of the world. So I feel like John Williams... (laughs) It's synonymous with with our youth and synonymous with our upbringing and before we knew all these directors and writers and composers like John Williams has been a constant throughout our whole history of film over the last few decades. So yeah, this is... This one's going to be weird. I think what's cool, too, about what you were saying, Ray, is, yeah, we weren't, a, like, alive during the times that a lot of those movies came out. But what I think's great is, like, he's been around for so many generations to where, I mean, think about when Harry Potter came out. I mean, he established this Hedwig's theme as, like, a score that everyone who's a fan of the Harry Potter franchise, I mean, it plays in their heads nonstop. And I remember growing up, I know I talked about it in one of our previous episodes when we were talking about film trilogies, but... Indiana Jones was super important to me and my brother growing up, and we'd always play the Indiana Jones theme, and we used to have the Indiana Jones video games on Super Nintendo, and I feel like that cemented my love for the score even more because I was constantly surrounded by it, always wanted to listen to it, playing Star Wars games, and the man, you know, he's talking about like, yeah, it's hard, but it takes up six months plus of my life to do that, and I'm 90 years old, which you can't really blame him for, and it's just like, I think he can settle down and retire knowing that he really redefined what it means to be a composer and just how much influence that he's had on the film world and the music world as a whole. Not only that, but I also feel like there is this... I feel like a lot of people, when they talk about some of these famous people in general that retired or or leave the industry, 
everyone's like, oh, did he retire on top? But I feel like John Williams, his legacy is so tremendous that there is no, did he retire on top? He has always been on top and he's going to remain on top even after he's gone. That is our discussion of John Williams. John, if you're listening, which we know you're not, we love you and we're so thankful that your music exists and it's affected Ray and I both a lot. And yeah, uh, we hope that you enjoy a wonderful retirement. And I hope Indiana Jones 5 is good. To transition, which has nothing to do with our episode, uh, today Ray and I are going to talk about uh, our f- top five favorite psychological thrillers and we wanted to do a little disclaimer at the beginning of the episode because Ray and I talked about this pre-podcast but psychological thriller I I feel like it has a different interpretation to everyone so Ray if you kind of want to give like your thoughts on what a psychological thriller means to you and then I can talk about mine and then we can go into it. To me, I feel like a psychological thriller can be interpreted in so many ways but ultimately I think it boils down to the psychological part. Like, is it messing with your mind? And by that, I don't necessarily mean, is it some like mind bending thrill ride, but is it, is it keeping you guessing? A lot of crime movies are psychological because you're constantly guessing. You're constantly trying to figure out the mystery behind it all. So I don't know. I think for me, psychological thrillers, it's not necessarily like a specific thing. It's more of like, are you as the viewer or is the cast and the characters are they being messed with is their mind being twisted in ways that they normally wouldn't be not necessarily in like a horror way but more like a real life scenario type of way you know i i we've obviously put together these lists and there's some great prime examples of psychological thrillers that i i left out of my list not because they're not incredible films but because I wanted to shine light on some of the maybe smaller films, but there's movies like Psycho, which is the granddaddy of them all. Alfred Hitchcock was known for being the master of suspense. He was really good about creating this atmosphere that just messed with your mind in movies like Rear Window or The Birds. But then you also have some of the movies that have redefined things like The Silence of the Lambs is an absolute classic that put the genre further cemented on the map. So I feel like if it's messing with your brain and it's keeping you guessing and it puts you in an uncomfortable scenario, that's psychological, in my opinion. Ray, and it's funny, you said all that, and I feel like I couldn't say it any better myself. For me, psychological thrillers, they encapsulate so much because I feel like it's not only something that toys with your head as the viewer, but also the head of the characters involved and anything that kind of dives into the human psyche. And I like what you said about how it doesn't necessarily have to be a horror movie. I mean, it can be just a straightforward crime drama, or it could be anything where the head, the characters involved are being messed with or manipulated in a way. I mean, even like Fincher 7 is like a psychological thriller. There's so many different movies across the spectrum that I feel like could be categorized as this. This might be a controversial opinion out there, but I see Nightmare on Elm Street as a psychological thriller. That's a character who is getting into the minds and manipulating the minds of the people involved to where it is damaging them on the inside and causing their real lives to be almost unlivable. So it does have a really wide definition, and I think it's one that, like, you know, each person is going to feel a certain way. But we just want to say, like, when we were talking about these lists, that this is just Ray and I's opinion. These are the movies that we think are fit into that category. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your list, Ray. 
way because you've surprised me with all of your lists you've done. And I think it's funny that sometimes we have some crossover, but I feel like there's still a lot of really good diversity in our lists. And just as a disclaimer that we want to throw in there too, something that we want to do a better job at moving forward is a lot of the films that we watch and that we discuss have a lot to do with um, subject matter that may be sensitive to people, especially when it comes to topics like horror or psychological thrillers or any topic moving forward. Um, and since we don't share each other's list, I'm just going to throw a blanket statement of a disclaimer that we will probably be discussing subjects like, you know, mental health, probably sexual violence or anything of that. So if those topics are triggering to you, please just be mindful that we are going to be discussing some more adult-oriented topics with these films. It's difficult for some people, and I remember being at film school when I talk about it with a lot of professors, that it's hard for people, but a lot of people who have gone through that trauma utilize that to put it in film so that people can learn and understand from others' experiences and to relate to that. And I know it's really difficult for some people, and Ray and I will probably touch into that on some of these films, because when you're dealing with a human psychology, typically there's a lot of, like, violence or trauma that's involved. So, yeah, that was was our disclaimer to get into it. I don't know about you, Ray. This list is not really in any particular order. These are just five movies I want to recommend to people. Yeah, same. Yeah, so I will start off on this list, and I'm pretty sure you have seen this movie, Ray, but my first pick on this list is going to be Mike Flanagan's Gerald's Game. You want to know what's funny? I have not seen it. Oh, seriously? I'm excited to talk about it because I know Ray is like me. He's a big fan of Mike Flanagan. Uh, I'm a huge fan of his work that he's done on his Netflix TV shows, but he's also made some really incredible movies. And Gerald's Game, in my opinion, might be one of the best Stephen King adaptations that has ever existed. Carla Gugino gives like one of the best performances I've ever seen, especially with what she's surrounded by. So just to give like a little brief synopsis of the film, the movie is about this uh, woman named Jessie and her husband Gerald, and they're having some marital problems and issues. And they go to a house to to get away and they get into their house and they're like hanging out together or whatever. And they decide that they're going to try and have sex. And he starts acting really weird and doing all this really strange stuff that makes her super uncomfortable. They get into a really like heated argument and he starts like grabbing his chest and he has her handcuffed to the bed and he ends up literally dying right there of a heart attack on the floor in the first like six minutes of the movie. He dies right there and the entire movie is Carla Gugino is attached to this bed and she's trying to figure out if she can survive and if she can get out and you're deciphering as the viewer whether or not things she's seeing while she's in this bed are actually real or if they're manifestations of her psyche and it's so insane like early on when they pull into the house she sees this dog outside and she ends up like her husband brought some steaks along. She goes outside and feeds it because it looks like it's hungry. Well, when they're inside the house, they're dumb and they leave the front door open and the dog gets in at one point. And so she's worried like this is a starving dog. This dog could start to eat me. Well, on top of that, there's the this weird guy who keeps showing up throughout the movie and she's trying to decipher is this a real person? And then on top of that, you're, she's also having these flashbacks to her childhood, which gives 
give you a lot more insight into her as a character and the things that have affected her over the years. And so it's really just this psychological, intense, brutal film that's also incredibly beautiful story of like overcoming your trauma and taking the power back in situations where you feel like you might not have that. And there's a lot of great Mike Flanagan regulars that show up into this movie that are incredibly talented. I feel like he utilizes a lot of the same actors. Like Henry Thomas shows up in the movie and he is just incredible in it. I feel like Henry Thomas, every time he shows up in one of these, everybody's like, oh, it's the little kid from E.T. And he's so amazing now. He does so many great movies. And this film, I don't want to get too much more into talking about plot details because it's just such an amazing movie to be along for the ride on. But like Flanagan's other movies, beautiful cinematography and incredibly like unsettling score. And it has one of the most intense third acts I've ever watched. So if you have a Netflix subscription, all Flanagan stuff is typically on Netflix. Go watch it. That Newton Brothers score to this movie is amazing. And yeah, I would check it out. And Ray, I hope one at some point you get a chance to watch it. The thing about Flanagan, though, that I love, I feel like, yes, Gerald's Game, I've it's on my watch list. I'm aware of the premise. It's really good. I feel like all of his films are really good at being psychological, psychologically driven. You know, from you have movies that he's done that I've been so moved by. Even his adaptation of um, Doctor Sleep and how he was able to marry The Shining by <clears throat> Kubrick and the source material. Flanagan is incredible at doing this whole, the mind games, the psychological aspect of it, but he's also really good at making them, almost giving it a positive spin. I feel like a lot of horror likes to end in dread. When it comes to Flanagan, he's really good at tapping into the more hopeful side of the psychology, that these things are messed up, but yes, they, they can get better with time. And I haven't seen Gerald's Game, but I'm already aware that Mike Flanagan is incredible at tapping into that psychology of the human brain and how it can really mess with you and take you down a really deep and dark descent. And I love that about all of his work that like, you know, even you look at Dr. Sleep or like Ouija Origin of Evil or any of the films that he's made, he can tell these really dark, brutal psychological stories, but he also always adds this really beautiful human element into it. And I feel like he understands human relationship and connection better than a lot of filmmakers out there now. This movie is no exception. It's a beautiful character study about someone who's experienced a lot of awful trauma. It's it's really just like all of his other work, you get into the mind of this character and you care so deeply for this character. And that's what I love about all of his work is just that beautiful human connection and it's like you said most of his films end on a on an optimistic note he's had a couple films that end pretty bleak but i feel like he understands like giving people that hope to grasp onto and to have someone to look forward to and i'm sure that's like something he's probably struggled with because normally you know art imitates life and it seems like his art is constantly talking about these struggles and that's what i've got to say about gerald's game i think you would love it ray and i hope you'll get to check it out soon i'm very excited to hear your first pick i just gotta say before my first pick um i gotta say i'm proud of you nate i thought i was just gonna get your top five david lynch movies <laughs> i don't trust me i thought about it <laughs> i was almost gonna make a disclaimer like nate this isn't a david lynch podcast no i made sure to give it some variety you all can stop giving me crap because of how much i love them <laughs> so for my <laughs> for my fifth pick while we're talking about directors that we love and respect i decided i start off my list with a director we spoke about in previous episodes 
and I am referring to M. Night Shyamalan's Split. What a great choice. I love this movie. I feel like Split is like the definition of psychological thriller. You have literally a character that has disassociative identity disorder. And you see him, first of all, we always talk about snubs. And James McAvoy will go down as one of the biggest snubs in my book because of his performance in this movie. I couldn't agree with you more. Absolutely. For those who haven't seen this movie, basically the, the movie takes place. This guy has disassociative identity disorder, DID, and he is switching off between different personalities while they have, and I say they because, you know, it's 23 personalities, have kidnapped three teenage girls. Basically, it's this psychological game that these girls want to escape and their confusion of they're talking to the same physical manifestation but it's a different personality at all times it mostly switches off between five main personalities but James McAvoy does a performance that I had never seen done that beautifully before you know like you have people in that movie that we admire too like Anya Taylor-Joy Betty Buckley but at the same time, that's it's James's show. James McAvoy, that's his show. That's his movie. There is no other way of going on about it. Split is my second favorite Shyamalan movie, but I feel like Split really taps into the psychology of someone struggling with that personality disorder. It's like an outward manifestation of this struggle that he's having because some of the personalities don't want to be doing this. But some of the other personalities do, and it's this like inner battle, but it's manifested outwardly, which I think is fascinating to look at. And, you know, for those who haven't seen it, I won't spoil it, but there's like this big reveal at the end of it that was jaw-dropping for a lot of people. But that movie, you can take away the big twist at the end, and it still is an incredible movie on its own merit without the big reveal. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think the thing I love so much too, and not to just piggyback off what you said, but with McAvoy's performance, is that he's taking on these different personalities. But what is so amazing is not just like the voices that he uses, but the mannerisms. And that's what's so incredible. Like the mannerisms that he has, like one of the personalities is like a young kid. When he channels into these personalities, you just feel it and you know it by the way that his body moves and operates. And I was so impressed when I watched this because I feel like this was a period in M. Knight's career where his trajectory was kind of weird and people like I think the visit came out shortly before this and people were kind of like on the fence about that movie and I feel like this was like Shyamalan getting back into what he's great at which is telling these intimate character studies in like a small confined space and I loved the environment of him having these girls trapped but also like working with this psychologist and those scenes were fantastic and I, I just loved the way the movie played out and the plot beats really made that third act that you were talking about so incredible and the payoff was amazing and even if you don't see it connected with the M. Night trilogy and you, you don't attach those, this movie lives in its own world to where it can be enjoyed by itself. The only thing I'll add to that is my favorite scene of that movie. It's a very, very subtle scene but it shows me everything I need to know about McAvoy and his acting chops is when he is one of the personalities Dennis and he's pretending to be another personality Barry and the psychologist figures out that he's faking being this other personality and the psychologist is like 
please, I want to talk to Dennis. I know it's Dennis who I'm talking to. And McAvoy's face in like two seconds completely changes where I believe that is a completely different human being just from the way how his facial expression changes in that split of a second. I don't know if you know what scene I'm talking about. Yes, 100%. I know what you're talking about. And it's just, it's incredible the the amount of time and effort he clearly put into this performance. And I feel like I agree with you. Even if he didn't win Best Actor that year, like he was snubbed not getting nominated. And that just goes back to Ray. You and I have had this conversation a million times. The Academy doesn't respect horror. I don't think they ever will respect horror. But hopefully we'll see a change at some point. So yeah, that's my number number five pick. Um, Split. I mean, if you haven't seen it for any chance... Do yourself a favor. You'll watch one of the greatest performances you've seen from from McAvoy. For probably his best performance. Check out Split if you haven't seen it yet. So, Ray, for my fourth pick, I had to add this director in because he's one of my absolute favorite directors. And no, I'm not talking about David Lynch yet. I'm intrigued. <laughs> but, but it will happen. Uh, one of my favorite directors who I've mentioned to you a million times... Yorgos Lanthimos, and the film I will be talking about today is Dogtooth. I haven't even heard of that one. So, so Yorgos Lanthimos is a Greek filmmaker, and before The Lobster, all of his films were in Greek. And this was one of his early films that got nominated for a ton of different awards. This is one of the most wild movies I've ever seen. It's the perfect example of how Yorgos Lanthimos combines these really awful, horrible things that happen to people with dark comedy. So to give you an idea, Ray, this movie is about this couple who have an adult son and two daughters, and they live at home in this house. It's a really nice house in the middle of nowhere. And their dad works at this job at a factory, and you don't really know what he does for a living, but the kids are not allowed to leave the house. And they're not allowed to go anywhere. They're not allowed to do anything. And the very first instance that you're given into what's going on is he tells them that if they try to leave, that there's a horrible monster in the yard that will murder them immediately if they try to leave the house. And Ray, the monster in their yard is a house cat. So you start to get insight into what he's doing to them and how he's manipulating them by the fact that they don't know what certain words mean. It's really weird. At the beginning of the film, you see that the father is like paying a security guard at his house to come have sex with his son. And it's almost like he's trying to like have another kid so that he can put this kid in this environment and force them to grow up in this specific way. He like makes them do these performances uh, and his wife is totally fine with it and it's super bizarre. But like she, uh, one of the girls is having a conversation with the girl and she the girl kind of like comes on to her while she's in the house and she's like rubbing her leg and she looks at her in the face and says do you know what father will do if he finds out you tried to touch my keyboard so like you find out that he like telephone he never teaches them the word for phone he teaches them that it's another word so that they can never find out what these things mean and the whole film is he's trying to completely shelter them from reality he doesn't want these kids to have any sort of connection with the outside world because he feels like his lifestyle and the way that he lives is the only way that people can successfully live in this world and it really has this large commentary about how parents treat their children and how 
people shelter their children for a long period of time, but how kids will eventually find the way. Like one of the girls finds uh, VHS tapes and comically enough, she ends up watching Jaws and she starts referencing the movies. And that's when things start to get kind of intense because the dad finds out that there's this outside influence from these movies. And it's just this really insane movie that is hilarious. Just for an example, Ray, I'll give you one of the scenes. This will make you laugh so hard. So he sits all the kids down and, and says, guys, I want to play you this song that your grandfather wrote for you. And he wrote you this song because he loves you so much and he wants to tell you how much he means to you. And he puts the record player on and he's playing New York, New York from Frank Sinatra. And he's yelling at them. He's like, at this part, he's saying he loves you so much and he's so proud of you. And it's just like really bizarre, but also hilarious things. But you also feel for these kids because they're trapped in this environment and they can't get out. And he tells them that the only way that they can leave the house is if they lose their dog tooth, which obviously is not a real thing a human being has. And so it's it's just this really intense, comical psychological adventure that is unlike anything I've ever watched. And that's why I love Yorgos Lanthimos so much. His movies are so uniquely weird and disturbing and funny. And this is one that every time I've seen it, it just is so powerful and it really hits me every time I see it. And obviously there's a lot of really disturbing content. This movie like goes into like the idea of incest at points because these kids are not exposed to anyone in the outside world. There's all this crazy subject matter. And Yorgos Lanthimos seems to really want to dive into understanding the human psychology in a way that a lot of directors are afraid to kind of dig into that. And so this is a movie I would recommend if you're into really darkly comedic films or really interesting psychological movies, you 100% need to watch this. I need to just check out this director as a whole because I feel like he has... Every time you talk about his films, I'm I'm intrigued by it. So I feel like I need to just sit down and have a, a binge of this director, just in general. His whole catalog is worth watching. I've never seen a movie from him that's bad. Every single one of his movies holds a really special place in my heart, and Dogtooth is no exception. I'm going to have to jump on, on this director. You always bring him up, and it's it's time. It's time for me to do it, because that sounds really fascinating. It sounds, again, what we are probably going to beat over the head on this episode is the psychology of of circumstance, you know, somebody being put in, in certain circumstances and how that affects them psychologically in ways that maybe we don't even understand and that we will never understand ourselves unless we're exposed to it and that's kind of the beauty about this this genre that it exposes you to situations you and i probably were never going to be exposed to and the the other thing about that movie too is like you think about it on a level of not only are you being psychologically manipulated, but you're being manipulated by your parents who are the people who you are supposed to feel the closest to and who are supposed to be there, which obviously I've talked about in the podcast before, but that's something that hits me pretty hard. Growing up with a very manipulative and gaslighting father, I lived that my whole life. And so obviously this is taken to an, a complete extreme, but it's, it's really interesting to think about Yorgos as a person and what did he deal with in his own childhood 
and how it's reflected. So he's he's putting a lot of himself into these movies, and it's just complete brilliance. His filmmaking is like one of the few directors that exists now that reminds me of Kubrick. His cinematography is beautiful, and yeah, I could we could have done a whole episode on Yorgos Lanthimos, but watch Dog Tooth; it's amazing. All right, we'll have to add it to the the ever-growing list I get from Nate. And Ray, I am so ready for your fourth pick. I'm glad you picked Split. I'm excited to hear what you got to got to let us know about. So the next movie that I picked, this is a movie that I watched a long time ago, and I was obsessed with it. And then I kind of just didn't see it for years and years and years. And then while I was coming up with this list, I remember this movie and I revisited it after so many years and it still holds up. It was directed by the late Bill Paxton and it stars Bill Paxton and the movie I'm talking about is Frailty. I have never seen Frailty, so this will be this will be a new one for me. Frailty is the story. Bill Paxton, he is a single dad. Um, his wife, I believe, passed away from what I recall from when I watched it. And he is raising two boys by himself. Him and his two sons live a relatively healthy life. You know, the two kids take care of each other while he goes to work. And he just, he's just like the nicest, most charismatic father you could think of. And then one night he wakes up his kids in the middle of the night. And he's like, kids, I just had uh, a vision from God. And in this vision... God told me that I have been tasked with killing demons. And he, the kid's like, well, how, how would you know they're demons? It's like, well, they're going to look like humans. And there will be an angel that will visit me. And the angel will give me the names. And he will give me the weapons to kill these demons. And they're going to look like humans, but they are demons. And we have been tasked by God to kill these demons. And he's like, we will be given weapons to kill these de- demons. And... The weapons he allegedly gets from this angel, an axe, a pair of gloves, and a crowbar. And that's it. That's all he has to kill these demons. And just a little a little side note from this this whole story is being told from the from the perspective of one of the kids. As an adult, he goes in to visit the sheriff and he's like, Hey, I know who this killer is of this case they ha- they have had open for years. It's like the killer is my brother. And then he starts narrating the story of how his brother became the killer. And it all predates back to his dad being the one that received the, this alleged revelation from God to kill these demons. And it's Matthew McConaughey is the adult son telling the story. I don't want to get way more into it because I will start getting into spoilers. And since you haven't seen it, I don't want to give away anything. But yeah, so Bill Paxton received this vision from God who tells him you need to kill this these people. They're demons. But they don't look like demons. They look like normal human beings. And then it's this kind of psychological thriller about, did he actually receive a revelation from God? Is he just insane? What is going on? And yeah, it's it's an incredible movie. That sounds totally up my alley. Not to mention, I'm a huge Bill Paxton fan. And I've never seen it. And obviously seeing a young Matthew McConaughey, I'm sure that that's really entertaining. But that gets you into that same situation we're talking about with Dogtooth where uh, your parent comes to you and tells you this thing. And you're like, okay, this is really wild and out there, but they're your parent. And you're like, okay, do I believe them? Do I not believe them? 
And that just sounds like it would make it even more complex for you as a viewer to be like, okay, well, if these kids start playing into it, we on the surface, we hear that and think, okay, that's lunacy. Like you'd never believe that. But like when you've been raised by a person for so long, you might get into the mindset of like, okay, I have to believe them. So yeah, Ray, this... That sounds right up my alley. I just added it to my list. I will definitely be watching that soon. I didn't realize it was directed by Bill Paxton the first time I watched it, but when I rewatched it recently, I saw Bill Paxton as the director as well. So, And then Matthew McConaughey, I know a lot of people think Matthew McConaughey is this, like, you know, the all right, all right, all right guy, or the dazed and confused guy, but no, he's legitimately phenomenal in the movie too. I really enjoyed his performance and what he does with it. I, frailty i just honestly can't say enough the movie's it's old it's from 2001 so you figure it's like 30 years old but it still holds up in my opinion i don't see matthew mcconaughey as the all right all right all right guy i see matthew mcconaughey in texas chainsaw massacre the next generation oh god <laughs> <laughs> which is one of my favorite films in that franchise i don't care you can cancel me for that that movie is amazing <laughs> <laughs> well before no. we get canceled why don't you tell me what your next one is Yes. Yeah, so my next pick, this is, Ray, I, you know this is difficult for me to say, but this is possibly my favorite movie of all time. It's definitely in the top three contenders as one of my favorite films ever made. And this movie for a very long time was really hard to come across and it was really difficult to find. I luckily managed to get a copy of it on Blu-ray, and it's one of the greatest movies ever made. And the film I'm going to be talking about is Possession from 1981, directed by Andrzej Zalowski. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, and I want to watch it, but I can't find it. Well, I will make sure to send you a copy of it, because I have a physical and digital copy of it, and this is a movie that you literally have no choice but to watch. Uh, so, this movie stars a little-known actor, you might know his name, Ray, Sam Neill. I think I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, and also, uh, my favorite performance ever from an actress by Isabel Ajani. This movie is absolutely amazing, so what it's about is, uh... Sam Neill plays a guy named Mark who is a spy who comes home in West Berlin from an espionage mission that you don't really know anything about. And he gets home to his wife, Anna, played by Isabella Johnny. And he gets home and they have a kid together. And when he gets there, she literally looks at him right out of the gate and says, I want a divorce and I don't want to be with you anymore. So she leaves and it kind of sends him into a spiral. Uh, he starts kind of like losing his mind to where he wants to figure out why she's deciding to leave him and what has caused her to get to this point. And it's really difficult to talk about this movie in more detail than just that because of how much it would spoil the experience. But to say it simply, she starts to kind of lose her mind in a way that is so captivating. It really is a huge commentary on like divorce and this how women are perceived in that situation. And there's also like a lot of visual context of separation. The entire movie takes place right around the Berlin Wall at this period of time in the 80s. So you can use that as kind of a context to their marriage. But it takes a turn into this like supernatural, very weird cosmic horror thing that you're in the mind of both of these characters who give these almost theatrical monologues to one another that it's so captivating and incredible to watch. And the, the score to this film, which, Ray, I know how big you are into scores, is done, and I'll probably butcher his name. His name is Andre Korzynski, I believe. 
the score to this movie is one of my absolute favorite scores of all time. But this movie, like, it's so fascinating. They'll get in an argument together, and Sam Neill will, like, tell her how much he hates her, and then immediately comes back and, like, cowers at her. And, like, there's this scene, if it tells you how intense this movie gets... She is in there and they're fighting and he says, hey, you, you'll never know how much I love you. She does this scene and it's one of my favorite scenes in any movie because there's no dialogue. It's all visual. She's at a window and she looks at him and she's like crying and it's one take and she goes from crying to maniacally smiling in like a two second span and it's amazing how quick she shifts and she's like cutting this thing with like an electric knife and she ends up cutting herself with the electric knife and Sam Neill goes so insane in the moment he ends up cutting himself with the electric knife. The relationship between the two of them is so intense and this whole thing happens where he starts taking his son to school because Anna's character is disappears for a while and he never knows where she's going well when he starts taking his son to school he meets his son's teacher and literally she looks exactly like his wife they're almost complete replicants of each other. That starts to play a role into this idea of dual identity. And there's so many different themes in this. And like I said, it, it turns into this weird, like, cosmic, almost, like, creature horror. And it's really difficult to talk about this movie without spoiling it. So I don't really want to say much more. But it is one of my favorite films of all time. And I love it more each time I watch it. I was able to show this to my wife not too long ago. And she was like, holy shit, this is one of the most insane things I've ever watched. Yeah, Ray, I'm going to have to get you a copy of this soon so you can see it. Because it is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I feel like we could do an entire episode, once you've seen it, of just like breaking this movie down beat by beat because it's just that good it's so interesting to me how sam neill if we all know sam neill and love him from the jurassic park franchise but he was making all these really dark messed up movies like that one or in the mouth of madness or you know all of these intense cosmic horror movies you know i had no idea that sam neill was so attached to the cosmic horror genre so it's it's I had no idea he was in this movie either. So I'm really excited to watch it. I love Sam Neill so much. It's it's absolutely insane. And what's great is is like the amount of tonal shifts this movie takes because it starts off and it makes you feel a very specific way when you begin the movie. But as it progresses, it's very anxiety-inducing. And it kind of shifts with you as the viewer as your perspective shifts on the situation. And it really just... As much as the character's psyche is being toyed with, your psyche is being toyed with equally as much. And the third act of this movie is something like the first time I watched it, I was like, what in the fuck just happened? But after I've watched it a couple times, I've pieced together more and more. And it's one of those movies that like, sure, there's a surface level explanation, but there's so much going on under the surface. And obviously, if you look at Berlin in the 1980s, there was so much going on in that period of time. So there's like a huge like sociopolitical context to the film as well compared to just like what's on the surface and, and the mental health implications that go on and all that. But it's just a really great piece of art. And I think everyone who loves film should see it. All right. Well, then you'll have to send me a copy because, yeah, I definitely want to see it. 
Well, I am ready for your third pick, Ray. Let's hear it. So for my third pick, I was actually really surprised that this is his directorial debut because of what an amazing movie this is. And I'm talking about Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler. I have never seen Nightcrawler. That's another one that has been on my list for a while. Nightcrawler stars incredible Jake Gyllenhaal. Um, so the movie is basically Jake Gyllenhaal is this kind of like slimy, I don't even know what to call him. He pretty much scraps, like collects scraps and sells it. He's just trying to make money to survive. I don't know, he's kind of like a scummy guy, so he can't seem to catch a break. No one will hire him, and from the from the opening shot of him, he is very, just a scummy guy, and you don't like him at all from the very beginning, but then he witnesses a car crash, uh, so he pulls over, and he notices that a crew shows up and starts filming the car crash, and they are filming the accident and how the cops are performing CPR on the victim. And then he kind of stops them and he's like, what is this? Which, by the way, I piggyback off of my last movie, The Incredible Bill Paxton, is the man recording and he tells them they record these almost very graphic and upsetting segments on their camcorders. And then they go around to news broadcasts and they sell those and they make money off of that. They're just like freelancing videographers and they said that they're nightcrawlers. That's what they're, that's what they call them, nightcrawlers. Basically from there on, Jake Gyllenhaal decides that that's what he wants to do to make money and hires an apprentice that he pays like 30 bucks a night to, played by Riz Ahmed. And then that relationship of the psychological manipulation he does on Riz Ahmed, on Rene Russo, who is the owner, who is the person in charge of the news broadcast where he's selling to, that competition thing that he's got going with Bill Paxton and all this psychological manipulation he does to everyone he comes in contact with. It's not by any means a horror movie. It's more, it's definitely a thriller. Basically, he becomes so obsessed with wanting to be the best that he almost like starts letting crimes happen in order so he can get the perfect footage to sell to these stations. And it, just everything he does is really slimy. He's very manipulative. Psychological manipulation he has on people. How he talks to people. How he seemingly is this really nice, thoughtful guy. But you can almost read right through him that he has these like awful interior motives. And how he wants to be in control of everything. And how he wants to just be the best hopping it doesn't matter who he needs to take out or what sketchy things he needs to do in order to create the best footage he can have so he can be the best one you know there's also the whole narrative of what people are willing to watch and you know the more violent and the more gross and insensitive the the footage is the more Rene Russo is willing to pay for them and yeah it, it's incredible and it's one of those movies that ends in a really bleak note as well. So I, I would highly recommend that it. it's up on Netflix still. That sounds like something I 100% want to see. That sounds like fascinating subject matter. I really like any sort of material that dives into the psyche of like really deranged people who are willing to go to like certain circumstances to, you know, get what they want in a way that might be unconventional to others. I read this book recently. I really like this horror author. His name's Christopher Triana. And he wrote this book called Toxic 
love about this like dad who was recently divorced and he works as like a crime scene cleanup guy he can't hire anyone to work and they finally hire this woman who's like in her early 30s and her thing is she's obsessed with having sex at crime scenes and it sounds like a really like wild premise but like the whole thing is getting into how this woman starts to psychologically manipulate this guy be uh because of the frail state that he's in and ends up getting him like involved with these like crime bosses and so i love any type of material that looks at the really warped and depraved side of the human mind but humanizes it in a way that you can almost empathize for these people even though what they're doing is so fucked up flip the script on how you feel about them constantly because if you go into a movie and you're like hey i like this person the whole time sure that's fine but it's so much more fun for me as a viewer if you go into a movie with someone who's like seemingly really unlikable but you can feel for what they're doing and this sounds like a movie that would really like emotionally toy with you on that level sure and i think something that i also love about this movie is any point he never really com does anything well i mean yeah there are a few times where he does but for the most part he doesn't he isn't really doing anything wrong but he's also not doing anything right either he's just trying to get ahead of everybody and like i said i mean from jake gyllenhaal to riss ahmed to bill paxton to renee russo that the cast is incredible everybody gives an incredible performance and everyone is kind of a scummy person. The only person you're almost rooting for a little bit is Riz, Riz Ahmed. But everyone is kind of a scummy person in this movie. And you can't help but not be able to look away. It's incredible. That's the kind of movies that I want to watch are ones that like, oh, I feel like I probably shouldn't be watching this. But I'm going to watch it anyway because uh, I'm interested as to where this is going to go. And I love filmmakers who challenge you as the viewer to kind of be engaged in something that you might otherwise not. I watched this found footage horror film recently called The Poughkeepsie Tapes that was like, from the perspective of police force finding these VHS tapes of like a serial killer murdering people and like, trying to figure out where he is based on the context of those videotapes and having you as a viewer watch something like that that's so horrific but for a purpose and I think that's fascinating psychologically where it's like this person in the movie is willing to like let these horrible things happen to people so that he can do this as a career like I, I that sounds like something I would really enjoy there's a I'll, I'll finish with this there's a scene where you know they're starting to make good money and he's currently paying Riz Ahmed like 30 bucks an hour. Throughout the movie, he's been asking Riz, like, he's been asking him, like, hey, I want a performance review. I want to make more money. I want to make more money. They allude to you that Riz Ahmed is this, like, homeless guy that is barely getting by. And then he's like, okay, give me your number. What, how much money do you want to make? Riz Ahmed gets really nervous and he's like, I don't know, like, 75 bucks a, a night? And he's like, done. And then they drive off and then Riz Ahmed looks and he's like, I could have gotten more money, couldn't have. And he's like, yep. Absolutely. He's like, well, can I ask for more money? He's like, nope, you had your chance. And just drives off. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> just like, but it's moments like that where like, you can tell Riz Ahmed isn't, you know, his really simple person that has no clue what he's doing. And he is manipulating and taking it. It's, oh, it's a messed up movie. And I love it. It sounds like something that I would really love. Yeah. So on that note, on that gross and grimy note, what is your next pick well my next pick ray we'll just get it out of the way it's gonna be my david lynch pick and i'm just gonna talk about one of the greatest psychological thrillers ever made mulholland drive wait you know david lynch yeah i know right are you shocked <laughs> have you seen mulholland drive i sure have 
Okay, cool. So uh, we can talk about it back and forth a little bit. I feel like this is a movie... I'm not going to go too into detail because it's really hard to not spoil the movie by talking about this in detail. But simply, Naomi Watts' character, Betty, who is going to Hollywood because she wants to start her acting career. And she's kind of this, like... I don't know. She almost feels like the stereotypical portrait of, like, 1960s bubbly, like, happy actress. And she gets there and she is going to an apartment that's uh, supposed to be owned by her Aunt Ruth. And she gets inside and she finds a woman laying on her couch who has amnesia and she can't remember anything about her life. And she sees a poster for the movie Gilda with Rita Hayworth in it. And she says, oh, my name's Rita. And so the entire movie is... Betty is trying to help Rita find out who she is. And when she opens Rita's purse at the beginning of the movie, she finds a bunch of money and a blue key. And at the same time, you have this thing going on at this Winky's diner with these guys talking to each other about finding this horrible figure behind the diner. And there's this really incredible monologue. And so the movie is these women trying to figure out who this other woman is while at the same time... Betty is trying to pursue her acting career and it's just this really incredible psychological thriller that kind of dives into David Lynch is obsessed with this idea of like dual identity and it comes into play in not only this movie but Inland Empire and Lost Highway where he really likes to explore you know the sides of people he really likes to look at the gross underbelly of places and the disgusting nature that exists under this supposedly picturesque perfect uh, idea that people have of things and that's what I really like about this movie too is like the beginning when Naomi Watts shows up in Hollywood it's like this really beautiful picturesque portrait of Hollywood and as the movie goes on you get like the seedier grosser more disgusting side of things and I don't know there's something about this movie that is so captivating and obviously it's a Lynch movie so he's never talked about what it means to him but there's so much you can break down about this film and what it means and what it's supposed to be and the commentary on the Hollywood industry which is like obviously a super prominent theme throughout this movie but on top of that just your own self-identity because there's obviously a relationship that forms between these two women just like understanding your own head and this movie disturbs me so much and I feel like every time I watch it, even though I know what's going to happen, it still like resonates with me in a way that not a lot of movies do. Like the Silencio scene where the woman is singing the Roy Orbison song in Spanish is like one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen in a movie. And it just really moves you in a way that not a lot of movies can and I love this whole thing with the blue key and the blue box and obviously you can piece it together in whatever way you want and build it in your head because that's David Lynch's thing but it's just such an amazing movie and uh, I, I know Naomi Watts is amazing and uh, Laura Herring's great but I also want to shout out Justin Thoreau who I feel like does not get enough love in this movie and the great Angelo Badalamenti who makes a cameo in this film like it's just an amazing film I could rave about it for forever but I'd love to hear your perspective too Ray because I'll just it's Lynch I'll rate I'll talk for a year if I don't shut up you'll you you will commit crimes for Lynch yes I will uh, so it's interesting to me because David Lynch, love him or hate him, you can't deny it. He's one of the most unique filmmakers that has ever graced this black rock we call Earth. What I also love about this movie and all of his movies, but I think it's this one is the, from the, the Lynch movies I've seen, 
that's the most apparent is that you and I can watch this movie at the same time, completely under the same circumstances, and walk away with totally different interpretations of it. That's something that I love about Lynch, that he is very much up to leaving the viewer to find their own interpretation of, of his films. It was interesting, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but I watched the movie and I remember being intrigued, blown, just blown away, but also confused to a degree. And then somebody said to me, is like, well, the opening scene actually is saying a lot. And then I'm like, wait, what? And then I went and I just rewatched the opening scene, made the movie switch in my brain completely that it became a different movie once i understood what was happening on that opening shot that's what i love about lynch's films as a whole is like and he said this before in interviews and not to go on like a super long rant because like i said i mean one of the things i think i love the most about david lynch is that he's so authentically him and there's people that have accused him of like oh he makes these films and he has no idea what they mean and that's just bullshit he's he's a really in touch artist that understands how the way that art impacts other people is more important than what the art means to you. And so he's like, yeah, when I make these movies, they mean something to me. But like, once I get it out there, my favorite thing is to hear other people say what it means to them. Because at, at the end of the day, that's music, that's, that's paintings, that's film. It's like impacts you and how it shapes you and you attaching the things that have happened to you in your life really makes you connect with that work. And I love that you said that someone mentioned that to you about watching the beginning because I've had so many instances where I've watched movies that I'm like, oh, I feel like this is my interpretation and this is how I feel about it. But someone will say, hey, do you remember this part in this movie and when this happens? And it gives me a whole different perspective. And that's Lynch's filmography as a whole. Every time I watch his movies, especially like Eraserhead, I've seen Eraserhead probably like 20 times. And every time I watch that movie, I get something new out of it. And I feel a different way about it. And that's the same with Mulholland Drive. When you watch this movie, you can take so much away from it because it's so layered and it's so deep. And yeah, Ray, I agree with you. I, I think it's just, it's, it's amazing because when it comes to Lynch, so many people are like, I 100% understand what Lynch was going for. No, you don't understand. You can get the base ideas. Like I said, multiple personalities, dreams, alternative realities, the things that Lynch puts in every one of his films, you can kind of baseline grasp it. But I think what it means to you is vastly more important than that. I Definitely agree. So I'm excited to just revisit them. Honestly, every time I talk about Lynch, I'm just, I get excited because I'm like, I want to revisit these now. So for my second pick, this one is an obvious choice. Um, if you like psychological thrillers, this should be at the top of, of your list if you haven't seen it yet. Um, and it's really interesting that you mentioned Indiana Jones 5 because... It's the same director, James Mangold, and I am talking about Identity. Fucking love Identity, and I'm so glad that you brought it up because I feel like this is a movie that does not get talked about by enough people, and I honestly haven't probably seen it in like, I don't know, maybe 10 years, but it's a movie that like really stuck with me the first time I watched it, so I'm excited to hear you talk about it, Ray, because I love this movie. This guy is being convicted for some murders. Basically, they say, look, he cannot be because he's sentenced to death he's going to be put to death and his doctor is like no we we need to do a psych evaluation because the man has disassociative identity disorder and he has no clue 
who the killer is because he is not the one that committed the murders. It was a different identity. And they do, they decide to have this basically exercise with this man where he has to have all of his identities confront each other and they all collide at this hotel where it's a whodunit type of, of game of who's the killer between all these people. And chaos ensues right after right after that. So it's crazy, Ray. Just to give a little backstory, I uh, I was 13 when I watched this movie the first time. And I would actually say that this was one of the movies that really made me love the psychological thriller genre. Because I love the way that it starts. At the beginning, is kind of like this slow and methodical character study. And when it starts to get brutal... It gets brutal. I mean, like, this movie is unrelenting in the suspense. Like, it is just one of those heart-pounding films that, like, once you get into it and you start to understand what's going on a little bit more, well, at least you think you understand what's going on, it just really gets intense. And I remember the third act of this movie just, like, blowing my mind. When the reveal came up, I was like, holy shit, this is insane. Well, then the thing I love about this movie, too, is, like, I remember watching it the first time and being like, that was, how how is that possible? How is this person the killer? I That makes no sense. And then on, on watches ever since, I realized, oh, man, like, I, you know, I was probably, like, 12 or 13 as well when I saw it. There's no way I understood the psychological aspect of it. So now that I have... You know, I'm no expert, but I have a slightly better grasp. Seeing that psychological part play out and understanding what's actually happening on screen versus what I thought what was happening has changed the movie for me. And it's gone from me having to suspend disbelief to me just being in awe that how in the world did I not catch that the first couple times I watched that movie. Oh, for sure. And the other thing I love about it, too, is once you know what hap- what's happening in the third act, I love going back and rewatching this movie from the perspective of, hey, I know what's going, what already happens. And so you can pay a lot more attention to smaller details in the film, and that made it even more impactful for me, was watching it again, knowing what I knew, and then, you know, getting a little bit more out of the movie after that. But yeah, this is like... As far as psychological thrillers go, in my opinion, this is a must-watch. The cast is great. I feel like a lot of the actors and actresses in this movie are don't get talked about enough. You know, you have John Cusack, who I I always love John Cusack. I, I'm always there when I see John Cusack in the movie. You have the late Ray Liotta, who have all these incredible performances from everybody you know you have all these really tension filled moments in this movie and this movie could have easily gone off the rails really really fast but it continues and like you said it's unrelenting it's not just well and that's the thing it's like it's not just the story of like oh there's a killer on the loose it's also like everyone in that hotel and not everyone is as they seem as well so it's like there's not just like this whodunit plot but it's also like it really could have been any of those people because the more you find out about their backstory you find out oh all these people are really slimy and they all could easily be the killer so it's a lot harder to try to guess because you as you find out their past you realize that they're very all could very well be it and the greatest actor in the movie you forgot to mention is jake Busey. oh yeah jake Busey. Gary, <laughs> gary Busey's uh son actually the actor i do want to talk about in the film that does not get enough recognition is my boy john c mcginley oh from the great gosh. scrubs 
And I love whenever he shows up in anything outside of Scrubs because I think he's an incredibly talented actor and he should get more work. And uh, yeah, he's great in this movie. I mean, Amanda Peet's awesome. Uh, John Hawks is great. I, there's, it's a really stacked cast. Uh, even Alfred Molina shows up in this movie. Yeah, he's a doctor. It's such a star-studded uh, cast. Yeah, watch this fucking movie if you haven't seen it. it. It's so good. I'm glad you brought up John C. McGinley real quick, just because I feel like he now gets typecast as the macho um, alpha in everything that he does. But, like, on Identity, he turned out, like, a really emotional and heartfelt performance that I wish we got that side of him more often. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because unlike most of the characters in the in the film, he has his stepson with him. And his wife, who's, who, who had an accident. Yeah, and you have this, like, family dynamic that in this, like, stressful situation that you're trying to figure out, okay, how are these people getting killed off? Like, what's going on? Like, he's got to be a dad. And, and, and it really, it's a really subdued and a really great performance. That is my pick. Um... I love that movie, and yeah, everyone should watch it. It's up on Netflix, so you have no excuse. We have arrived at your number one. Well, Ray, as a surprise to no one, my number one psychological thriller I want to talk about is Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse. What? Yeah, are you shocked? I mean, a little bit. <laughs> uh, I, As Ray and I have discussed multiple times in the podcast, we're Robert Eggers' fanboys, and The Lighthouse is... The reason why I want to talk about it is not only because I love Robert Eggers, but this was one of my favorite experiences I've ever had in a movie theater. I uh, really piecing together this film and trying to understand what was going on and to get into the minds of these two characters was so incredible to me. And I felt like both of these characters put on an amazing performance to just give a base plot, which if you haven't seen The Lighthouse, you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. But The Lighthouse is about Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are two lighthouse keepers who are dropped off on this desolate island to take care of this lighthouse. Uh, Willem Dafoe's character is very much like he's the only one who wants to be up there in the light. He doesn't want Robert Pattinson getting anywhere near it. He's very protective of it. And it's about the relationship between these two characters being stranded in this place together and their conversations and how the conversations kind of give you insight into each one of the characters' lives. And what I love about it is Willem Dafoe's character, I feel like on the surface, is who he is. There's little bits of like mystery and intrigue into his character that kind of make you want to know more but he's just this really eccentric and over-the-top person who makes the film fun to watch but what I feel like not enough people talk about is Robert Pattinson's performance where it feels like sometimes that his accent shifts and like the way that he's presenting himself changes to where you really want to know okay where the fuck is this guy from why is he acting the way that he's acting and what caused him to get into this situation and this movie really is the mind game of all mind games where it's just these two people secluded on this island together and watching all hell break loose. I remember watching The Lighthouse in theaters, um, in a packed theater. I thought it was really interesting that this movie was packed. Like, I had to sit, like, three rows away from the theater because everything else was full. Yeah, I remember Pattinson's performance being the standout, but it was also really interesting looking around the theater while this movie was playing and seeing people's faces like they had seen the weirdest thing the, the, everyone in that theater 
had an experience that evening. Even I did. I have such a fond appreciation for Robert Eggers. I think I've mentioned in the podcast before on my YouTube channel. I don't know. Time is a construct. It all blurs together to me. This is probably my favorite cinematography in any movie of all time. And I think one of the reasons why I appreciate it so much is knowing the amount of time and effort that Eggers put into like using old camera equipment and making sure that it like looked timeless. And I don't know if you'd agree with me, Ray, but I feel like this movie is timeless. I've heard people argue against that and that it won't hold up, but I feel like if you put this movie in a capsule and somebody digs it up in 200 years and you didn't tell them what era this film was made in, I don't think they'd be able to decipher it. I think it's so perfectly shot and well executed and, and Eggers really just creates this mind warping world that you're questioning every decision that every character makes and it leaves you unsettled. And I think that it's also in part to the Mark Corvin score where you have this really ambient and disturbing music in the background accompanied by this like looming foghorn from the lighthouse that's constantly blaring that just kind of sends chills down your spine. I remember being in the theater and thinking, God, the sound design to this movie is so visceral and really creates that brutality of the environment to where if I was in that situation, I'd be scared shitless. There is definitely also a sense of um, Lovecraftian, you know, pulls on, on this movie. I feel like there is a very Lovecraftian angle that they take um, with all the, you know, creature imagery that they have in this movie. And yeah, no, basically, I... Honestly, I can't really add more to what you just did other than, yeah, this movie is the ultimate mind just twist with your brain in every direction. And this was one of those movies that after I watched it, I had to know more. Like, I just needed to know more. Not in like, uh, this movie sucked at giving me a story. No, no, it was more like, I want to know more about this world. I want to know more about this time period. I want to know the inspiration behind it. I want to know what the other themes and motifs, the nautical aspect of it. Like, I wanted to be immersed in that world and know as much as I could from it. The Lighthouse only slow, like slightly edged out Jack and Jill as my favorite psychological thriller. I knew, I knew that. I'm actually disappointed. I was expecing Jack and Jill. Hey, that, it, no one can argue to me that that's not a psychological thriller. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, how did they cast Al Pacino in that movie? I have no idea. I want to know. I want to see that movie. I want to see the movie of how they got Al Pacino to say yes to this movie. Adam Sandler said, hey, Al, I got a lot of money for you. You ready? You want to come do a Dunkin' Donuts commercial? Oh my god, that was like spot on. <laughs> Zaba hee hoo, Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> that was pretty damn spot on, though. Let's talk about your number one psychological thriller pick. So my number one pick, um, as per usual, I try to leave the movie that I feel like not a lot of people have talked about in the past as my number one. Not because it's my favorite, but because I personally feel that more people need to just watch this movie. Maybe you have seen it. I don't know. But I watched this movie a couple years ago. It was recommended to me. It was by word of mouth that I found out about it. And it's called The Invitation. I love The Invitation. All right. Well, I'm glad that you have seen it. Um, The Invitation, as you know, this couple um, get invited to a dinner party. And when they arrive at the dinner party... So the dinner party is hosted by this man's ex-wife and new 
I'm assuming husband. Everything is weird, basically. Everyone is behaving strangely. A bunch of friends that haven't seen each other in years are there. And they all just seem a little too pleasant. And then the movie just becomes this like, they're just in this house. They're behaving strangely. Um, the man who's played by Logan Marshall Green, who was incredible, by the way. That man doesn't get enough enough work. He starts noticing that his ex-wife and new husband are behaving a little too strange, given that they're dealing with like a really traumatic experience that was the, the cause of their break, you know, their divorce. And he's just having a hard time wrapping his brain around this traumatic experience and doesn't understand how his ex-wife is so just like this new agey, free type of woman now and he just doesn't feel right and it's this like psychological experience of him just trying to come to terms with how he feels about everything but still not being trusting of anything happening in that house what i loved about it so much is that it really starts off as this like slow refined character study and i like how it builds tension where like when this dinner party starts, it's like it, it's very seemingly like inviting and like you don't feel uncomfortable, but the tension slowly starts to get get more palpable as the film continues on. And I think I, I know you were talking about Logan Marshall Green, but can we both talk about an actor who I feel like gets no love, John Carroll Lynch, who every time he shows up in anything, which I remember his performance in Zodiac being like one of my favorites, but he has this just like looming presence where he's this bigger guy. But what's so impressive to me is that he plays like calm and inviting, but then when he gets really unhinged, he's just such an amazing actor. And I also want to say this film is directed by Karen Kusama, who I really appreciate, who also did Jennifer's Body, which I feel like a lot of people know her for, and Eon Flux. She recently just started working on a little known TV show called Yellow Jackets that if you're into The Invitation, watch Yellow Jackets because it's amazing. But yeah, this movie, Ray, I'm glad you brought it up because this was one I took a chance on on Netflix a few years ago. I just clicked the button and watched it. It's been on Shudder a few times, but it's such a great movie. And that third act is so insane. Like I would have never saw it coming. Well, and then you have on going on with name dropping Michelle Hunsman, who we know from The Haunting of Hill House, also plays this like very welcoming and warm person and then just takes this dark turn as well it all culminates on that third and the third act that where everything just goes insane and the the thing about this movie that i love so much is that even though you're on mar on logan marshall Greenside, you feel like there's something weird you are uncomfortable up until the third act i was like maybe he is the one that just needs to mellow out Maybe things are as it seems. Watch The Invitation. It's such a good movie. Like, I feel like these are the type of movies that get kind of swept under the rug. But, I mean, look at the poster and all the South by Southwest awards that it won. And it's just like, these are the kind of movies I enjoy diving into and watching. And the Alamo Draft House did a really simple but really nice uh, Blu-ray edition of it, which I ultimately ended up buying it when it came off Netflix. I was like, I need to own this movie. This needs to be on my constant rotations of movie that I, that I revisit for years to come. Oh, absolutely. It's such a good movie, and it's such a unique movie. I feel like there's so many psychological thrillers that exist that, like, 
you know, do kind of the same things where we, we kind of understand where it's going to go. But this was a movie I truly had no idea where it was going to go. And I'm glad that I didn't. Same. So please go watch The Invitation. I can't stress that enough. Well, Ray, that was a really solid topic. I really had a lot of fun um, discussing that with you and kind of getting into the nitty gritty. Well, uh, that was a really great picks, Ray, and I really appreciate your recommendations. Yeah, same. I'm really excited to check out some of the ones you talked about um, as well. So I'm pretty stoked. A lot of these movies, by the way, are just up on your Netflix or your Hulu, so they shouldn't be too hard to find. Yeah, I know like The Lighthouse and a bunch of those movies were streaming on Prime Video, so I feel like none of the movies that Ray and I picked this week are so obscure you won't be able to find them anywhere other than Possession. Maybe Possession, yeah, Possession. Possession's going to be the only one that you struggle to find, but I'm sure if you go online, there's a lot more places that are trying to make it available because how much people have been talking about it in like the past three years. So definitely go check out all those movies. Ray and I had a blast talking about that, which leads us into our topic for next week. Ray and I were discussing it together, and we wanted to try to do something a little bit different than we're nor- than we normally do. And one of the directors that Ray and I have talked about a few times on this program, kind of in passing, is Edgar Wright. And I know Edgar Wright means a lot to Ray. Edgar Wright is like one of the main reasons I decided to go to film school. Uh, he's like one of the most important filmmakers to me personally. And Ray, I know he means a lot to you. And so next week. We are going to rank all of Edgar Wright's films minus the Sparks Brothers documentary. We're going to talk about all his theatrical releases. Yeah, so we're excited to dive into those. I know I'm, I'm going to be really excited to just revisit his filmography on the you know days to come until we are ready to record. Absolutely, I can't wait to do that. And uh, as always, I'm going to do the quick plug. Uh, you can follow uh, all the updates about the podcast on Instagram at the Film Monsters Podcast. Like I said at the beginning of the episode, we changed the name recently, so we've also changed the handle, so you'll be able to find us at the Film Monsters Podcast. We're not changing the podcast; it's the same type of content. We just changed the name. And as always, you can follow Ray's personal Instagram at Analog C, and you can follow my personal Instagram at My Exit Unfair. Uh, We're always open to questions if you guys want to ask questions for the episodes. Some of our episodes have run a little long recently, and we're trying not to, you know, make you guys sick and tired of us. So some weeks we'll answer some questions. We love answering audience questions, so please feel free to reach out. Ray and I are both very open to having discussions and answering your feedback. And I feel like the feedback we've gotten has been really great and very helpful. Social media is great, but we have noticed that we are getting more traction from people sharing and telling their friends and family about it so follow us that's all great we're excited to interact with you on social media but also please just word of mouth sometimes that's the best type of way that you can support us is by just telling people absolutely and as always we appreciate you guys for listening and we will see you next time stay gold people. 